Today we begin chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, and if you would please uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 3 as we read the first 18 verses. Let us begin with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps and the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, Lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image 
that you have set up. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a compelling story of pride and deceit and faithfulness. And today, teach us what it means to respond to those in our culture that would seek to destroy the influence of your church. Show us in a new way what faith is as we see it so beautifully demonstrated in the lives of three men as they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar under judgment of being thrown in the fiery furnace. Teach us, O God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, how are we to respond to culture forcing us to choose between obeying God and obeying obeying men? I think we find the answer right here in Daniel chapter 3. We want to look at this passage of Scripture in three ways. First of all, we find that Nebuchadnezzar had a plan to dominate the world, global domination. And then secondly, we see in this text a plot that was designed to destroy the influence of God's people in Babylon. And then thirdly, we see a beautiful demonstration of a biblical principle about faith as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego obeyed God rather than men, regardless of where that might lead. And so this is our plan today. You'll find on page 6 a sermon outline with Nebuchadnezzar's plan, a plot by some of the Chaldeans, and then the principle that we see demonstrated in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all answering the question how we today are to respond with our culture seeking to force us to choose between the world and the things of the world and being faithful to our God. So let's look at verses 1 through 7, the plan that Nebuchadnezzar had for world domination. When I think about a totalitarian dictator, someone who really is bent on global domination, I often think of of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. And if you, as I understand Hitler's grand plan, it was for global domination. He wanted to begin by waging war, and he thought it would be quite simple to conquer Czechoslovakia. And then after doing away with Czechoslovakia, his plan was secondly to go and, and wage war against France and Great Britain. And then after dealing with the French and the Brits, thirdly, he wanted to go and conquer the Soviet Union. And as I understand, as some reports indicate, that Hitler thought that, that waging war against the Soviet Union would be a rather easy matter. And then fourthly, in Hitler's plan, was to actually wage war against our own country, the United States of America. As we look at human history, we can see scattered throughout human history men like Hitler who, in the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar, sought to dominate the world, to abuse their power and reign supreme. Well, let's look at this spirit of Nebuchadnezzar by looking at Nebuchadnezzar. 
and what Daniel teaches us about his plan for world or global uh, domination. The last two messages from chapter 2 should have brought us to the place of assuming that Nebuchadnezzar would have been humbled and would have responded in humility to Daniel's interpretation of the dream. You may remember the dream basically is this. God showed Daniel and said, Daniel, tell Nebuchadnezzar that he may be the head of gold, but his kingdom is coming to an end to be replaced by a lesser kingdom. And then each of those lesser kingdoms will come to an end. In fact, all human kingdoms will come to an end And only one kingdom will stand forever, and that's the fifth kingdom, the kingdom of the stone, God's kingdom. And so we have this great image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and this little stone. And at the end of chapter 2, as we considered last week, it looked like there was hope that Nebuchadnezzar had come to his senses because he bows before Daniel, paying homage to Daniel. He, He actually acknowledges Daniel's God, and it... Maybe Nebuchadnezzar had a conversion experience. But if you thought that, today's uh, text should convince you that Nebuchadnezzar was not humbled by that dream, though he should have been, that he was not a changed man, that he was more committed to fulfilling his plan for world domination after the dream, even after Daniel tells them that his kingdom would be replaced. And the statue that Nebuchadnezzar erected, that we'll look at in detail in just a moment, basically said this, Nebuchadnezzar showing the world that nothing will stand in my way to fulfill my plan for global domination Not your God, not your God, and not Daniel's God. And by the way, not any of the gods in my pantheon of gods. And so we see then at the root of Nebuchadnezzar's plan for global domination is pride. Verses 1 through 7, it's interesting, and I don't know if you picked up, I was trying to, just in how I read, make, make note of the fact that in verses 1 through 7, six times... We read about Nebuchadnezzar set up that statue. (laughs) Did you catch that? Well, you count them. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar wants everybody to know, I set up this statue. It's all about me. And then secondly, is the size of that statue. 60 by 6 cubits. 60 cubits high, 60 cubits wide. That translates into 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That's a pretty big statue. And Nebuchadnezzar probably thought it should be a little bit bigger to adequately represent just how great and grand I am. And then thirdly, it was made out of gold. I mean, hey, the dream said, head of gold, why not my statue? Now, we don't know if it was solid gold, could have been gold-plated. It really doesn't matter. But the issue is gold was used to, to demonstrate that Nebuchadnezzar believed that he was worth every ounce represented in the gold used for that statue. Pride. 
I mean, like the builders of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make a name for himself. And so he has this, he sets up this, this great statue that was to show just how great he was, how awesome he was, and that nothing was going to stand in his way to dominate the world. Now, here's the third thing I want to say about this plan. What was the means that Nebuchadnezzar employed? In, in reading biographies like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a pastor that was ultimately executed because of, by, by Nazi Germany, we learn something about Adolf Hitler's means to consolidate power. He used the German church. And we see the same thing taking place in Nebuchadnezzar's day. Nebuchadnezzar used religion to consolidate his power to achieve his dastardly end of world domination. It's blasphemous worship. Baldwin, a commentator on Daniel, writes this, The incident, that is, the building and setting up of the statue, represents the conflict between worship of the true God and the humanistic use of religion to boost the power of the rulers of this world. It is characteristic idolatry that the idol is at the worshiper's disposal disposal to achieve his ends. So we do not know if the statue was in the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know if maybe Nebuchadnezzar chose one of his gods and fashioned the statue after that representation. But what we do know is that statue was for a religious person, a purpose. And that that religious purpose was a means for Nebuchadnezzar to consolidate power that he might bring everybody under a one-world religion, and he would be the supreme head of his little church to dominate the world. That's what we find here in Nebuchadnezzar. He was incredibly bright about using religion as a means. Because religion is by nature unifying, isn't it? And so in verse 1, the plan was to use the plain of Dura, this, this, this level, large expanse of land. Dura became a sanctuary for the religion of Nebuchadnezzar worship in verse 1. And then in verse 2, there is a call to worship. Nebuchadnezzar summons all of the officials and satraps and precepts and all of the important people and movers and shakers of the various provinces all over the empire representing different nations, languages, people groups. And they all gathered there to the sanctuary door before this statue. There is a call to worship. And we see a religious purpose for that worship to dedicate the statue And then in verse 4, believe it or not, choir, there was music at Nebuchadnezzar's, in Nebuchadnezzar's church. And we see all of these instruments. I don't know what to make of the bagpipe, but I like bagpipe music. But nonetheless, we see 
music being used to signal that the people prostrate themselves, an act of worship before this statue. And then in verse 5, there's an object of worship. And what is the object of worship, this golden statue? Well, yes, but really, it's Nebuchadnezzar because six times, this is the statue that what? Nebuchadnezzar set up. It's his. It's me, Nebuchadnezzar is saying. The worship service at Dora was wholly blasphemous. Nebuchadnezzar, as the object of worship, reminds us of Nietzsche's statement, if there is a God, Nietzsche said, how can I bear not to be that God? And Nebuchadnezzar positioning himself as God, an object of worship. It was blasphemous in that he demanded the very image bearers of God not to worship the Creator, but to worship the creature. He demanded God's image bearers to bow down before him, a creature of God. We see this, for example, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. And then third, it was blasphemous in that Nebuchadnezzar used religion as a means to a very dastardly end, world domination, one world religion, the consolidation of power, the supreme, Nebuchadnezzar is the supreme head of his church. And then in verses 6 and 7, we, we find in verse 6, there's a penalty for not bowing down, and that's the fiery furnace. And then in verse 7, what did the people do that were gathered there at the plain of Dura? When the music started, they didn't want to find uh, that they were the only ones left standing. They all bowed and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And here are some lessons for us. I've got two primary lessons. First, the kingdom of this world is religious. Don't be fooled otherwise. An atheist may view himself as irreligious, but he's not. Because self is the object of his worship. And so the humanistic religion of this world may take many, many forms, but it's man-centered and it's false and it's blasphemous and ultimately it is worshiping at the altar of self, the statue that man sets up. So when we're dealing with culture, we are dealing in a religious environment, even with what looks like to us the most pagan of people. And a second lesson is that the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, will stop at nothing to turn God's people away from true worship to bowing down to the altar of this humanistic religion, which is ultimately man-centered. Dr. Ferguson writes something interesting in his commentary. And he says, there is a monotony about the book of Daniel. 
Have you ever heard anyone describe God's word as monotonous? <laughs> well, Dr. Ferguson did, and in my judgment, he can. He's a really great guy. <laughs> but what is the monotony to which he refers? As you look at Daniel, it seems like the same old thing. The world is at war with God's people. The war is at war. And it's just the same thing over and over again. The players change. The circumstances are different. But it's the same thing. It's the monotony about it. But it's there for a purpose. It's there for us to understand the persistence of the city of man to destroy the city of God. Let me say it again. This world is persistently seeking to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And we know it's true because of Genesis 3, to which we've referred earlier, that there is enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent and and his seed. World domination number one world man-centered religion is the plan. And those of our culture who are most vocal about opposing God are seeking to bring everybody to the altar of this humanistic religion and to bow down there and be disloyal to the one true God of the Bible. We find an example of, the, of this persistent attack in verses 8 through 12. So let's go from the plan to the plot. A certain number of Chaldeans developed a plot to destroy the influence of, of God's people. In, in 2013, just a couple of years ago, there was a briefing by several dozen regular U.S. Army active troops and some also reserve troops in Shelby, Mississippi, It was held at uh, Camp Shelby, in fact, in Mississippi. And an evangelical Christian who was part of the military was one of the participants in this, I guess it was a seminar of these military personnel. And he was shocked at what he heard. Many of us know of the American Family Association, AFA. It's a well-respected evangelical ministry. And the American Family Association was listed by the presenter alongside the Ku Klux Klan, the neo-Nazis, the Black Panthers, and the Nation of Islam as a domestic hate group. And the instructor basically said that the American Family Association is known for their support of traditional values. And then he said, and by the way, they don't like gays. And that was two years ago. The city of God is seeking to discredit, I mean, the city of man is seeking to discredit the city of God. And this is but one example among many. And so when we go to verses 8 through 12, we, we, we see that, that these Chaldeans really saw this as an opportunity for them to destroy the influence of God's people in Babylon. And so they attacked. We see in verse 8 that, that they brought these accusations to Nebuchadnezzar, that they were malicious in bringing these accusations, in that they had evil intent. 
they saw this as just a, a prime opportunity to finally get rid of these, these pesky Jews. And so they developed this, what looks like to be a well-designed plan. Why? Were they jealous? Were they prejudiced towards Jews? Were they very nationalistic and wanted their nation to be pure? Could have been some of that. But the ultimate reason is what we've already mentioned from Genesis 3.15, that enmity between the city of God and the city of man. In verses 10 through 11, uh, part of the plot was to play off Nebuchadnezzar's pride. So they reminded him, Nebuchadnezzar, you commanded everybody to worship you, and, and some did not. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, you also said if they didn't worship you, they'd be thrown in their fiery furnace. And then in verse 12, we find uh, these Chaldeans singling out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and and they, they do two things. They first remind the king, but by the way, king, remember that you showed favor to these three Jews because you fulfilled Daniel's request to promote them to a high position of authority. And now, O king, look what they have done. They, they owe you loyalty. But secondly, O king, They've been disloyal to you. They've paid no attention to you, we read in verse 12. And the evidence that was given is that, O king, they've not served your gods, the gods of Babylon, and they've not bowed down to your statue. The Chaldeans likely were very happy that this opportunity had arisen. And so they tried to get Nebuchadnezzar to see that he needed to deal with this treason by these three Jews. I want to draw an implication here. The the attacks that, that we experience within the church and even as individual Christians are akin to the plot that we see here in verses 8 through 12. What happens when Christians like you and me or Christian organizations seek to uphold God's standard, not, not mean-spiritedly, which is simply being disciples of Christ genuinely. What happens when we do that and when our faithfulness to God conflicts with, as it most always does, the norms of our culture? What happens? Do Christians receive false accusations? Are they mischaracterized as gay haters and labeled as part of a hate group along with the nation of Islam? Are sometimes Christians, their faithfulness criminalized to really try and destroy their influence in culture? Are businesses owned by Christians so maligned that they have to shut down? Are Christian schools so regulated by the government that if they don't uh, comply with all of these rules and regulations about accepting this person and not being prejudiced against that person, that they suffer the penalty of government? I mean, when you really stop and think about it, there is persecution going on 
in our land today, Christians being falsely accused and sometimes even put in jail because of their stance, not making a public spectacle, but because they take a stand for righteousness. And what we need to understand, and I think we see this as a principle, that when those in this world that seek to destroy the influence of the church, when they have opportunity to do it, they will do it with much glee and celebration. Having said all of that, what is our concern as God's people? That we try to figure out ways to, to navigate these, these waters that that we try to figure out a way that we can make a public spectacle of, of our faith. No, our concern should be how do we respond in such a way that we obey God rather than men. This is what Shadrach and Meshach did. And that's the principle that they demonstrated. They were put in a situation that was thrust upon them where they had a choice to make, to obey Nebuchadnezzar or obey God. And they chose to obey God. And we want to look at that dynamic. The, uh, the, the plot that the Chaldeans had designed was, was really clever. They, they really wanted to uh, kind of ignite Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And as we look at verses 13 through 18, in particular verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar was outraged at this insubordination and disloyalty. And then in verse 14, he summons that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him to be interrogated, which took place. And he said, I want to verify these accusations. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in verse 14, that you did not bow down to my little statue nor worship my gods? And in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar offers them an opportunity to either prove that these accusations are false... These Chaldeans don't know what they're talking about. Of course we bow down to your statue. And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, if that is so, the music will start. Just bow down again. Prove to me that the accusations are wrong. Or perhaps Nebuchadnezzar thought in verse 15 that indeed that, that these accusations were true, but he wanted to give them an opportunity to recant. And Nebuchadnezzar says that, that when the music starts, if you fall down, well and good. In other words, all will be forgiven and we can be one big happy church again. The church in Nebuchadnezzar. And then he reminds them in verse 15 that the penalty for disobedience is death. But I want us to look at the very end of verse 15. Very significant statement that Nebuchadnezzar makes. It really is a rhetorical question. This, this helps us really get into the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar. What does he say? And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. I mean, it points to his belief that he was God and not even Daniel's God would thwart him. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you really understood how mighty I am, you would view that you're on a fool's errand to try to stand against me in disobedience. And now let's look at verse 16. Curiously, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make this response. They, they say, they, they answer King Nebuchadnezzar by saying, we don't have an answer. <laughs> we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing is simply saying, we're not going to make a big deal out about our obedience. 
In other words, we're simply King Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to try to justify who our God is. We're not going to try and justify why we did what we did and all of the intricate details associated with that. We're simply going to let our actions speak for themselves. And our actions are actions of faithfulness towards our God. In fact, they didn't make a big deal about anything. Because it's not until verse 12 that we even hear of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When all the other officials, scores of them, were summoned to the plain of Dura, there's no mention of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are, they are just under the radar. We don't see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going, hey, wait a minute, I'm not bound down that aisle. Where's my cardboard? I'm going to make a sign saying, I love God. I'm not buying down. Put it on a stick. And they're marching around the plain of Dura. I believe in Yahweh. You all are going to hell. I believe in Yahweh. They didn't make any demonstration. They didn't call attention to themselves at all. They simply obeyed God. And they said to the king, we'll let our actions speak for themselves. And here's the implication. In my opinion, I think it's rare that a Christian or a church would need to make a spectacle out of obeying God, to make a demonstration out of obeying God. We are called to just simply obey God and let our actions speak for themselves and not try to draw attention to ourselves by picketing and protesting and other means of demonstration. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego quietly and faithfully obeyed God. And when the people of God faithfully and quietly obey God, they will be noticed, not because they're making a big deal about it, but the world is persistently seeking to destroy the influence of faithful Christians like you and me. Now, this may not settle set well with some of you, but I believe the church of Jesus Christ has erred by Christians trying to make a statement about being loyal to God. Dr. Ferguson once again writes this, they Christians are to simply act according to the Lord's word and allow their actions to speak without unnecessary histrionics. In verses 17 through 18, we see really what was behind these three men's faithful actions. In verse 17 is a statement that they had absolute confidence that God had the ability to thwart the hand of the king. That is to say that God could have come down and just simply halted Nebuchadnezzar right in his tracks and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have never been put in the fiery furnace to begin with. In other words, God could have thwarted Nebuchadnezzar and brought them out from under that, that penalty of death. They believed God could do that. But then look at verse 18, which I think is key to the entire passage. But if not, meaning if our God chose not to deliver us from the king's hand, but sovereignly and providentially 
left us in the king's hand, and we were subject to that fiery furnace, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, we still will not bow down to you. We will be faithful to our God. Why? Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood that their faith was not in the deliverance. Their faith was in God. Yes, God could deliver. But also, yes, God could sovereignly work even through my martyrdom, even through my burning in the flames to bring about His eternal purposes for His glory and for the good of His church. Now, let me tell you something. That's faith. Our faith is in God, not deliverance. Because sometimes God's will is for the Christian to burn in the furnace. You know, as we obey God, the the road may not lead to a furnace, but the furnace-like might be ridicule, might be you're part of a hate group, might be I've got to close my business, might be financial ruin because of lawsuits, might be demotion at work, might be put in prison, might be put to death. Obey God rather than men regardless of where it may lead. That's the principle. That's the principle we see in Acts chapter 5 with the apostles that Tom read earlier. The Sanhedrin tried to stop them from preaching the gospel For Peter and John and the others to stop preaching the gospel would be a direct disobedience to Jesus Christ himself who commissioned them in Matthew 28 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And preaching is a part of that. And there we find the wonderful words in verse 29 of Acts 5. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We're going to keep on preaching. We're going to be faithful to Jesus. We're going to let him deal with the outcome. We're going to let him deal with the consequences. We're going to be faithful knowing it may lead back into prison, knowing it may lead to death. Let man's response be what man's response will be. But I will serve the Lord and be faithful to Him. And let me tell you something. When we do that faithfully, genuinely, sincerely, and quietly unto the Lord, the world can't help but take notice. I want to close with an example of, of, of faithfulness. And probably like, like some of you, on Friday morning, September 11th, I watched the original airings of the terrorist attack on the World Trade Towers. And 14 years ago, it's hard to believe, isn't it? And of course, we know many stories came out of that. There were scores of emergency personnel that were faithful to do their duty 
regardless of where it might lead them. And on that day where it led them was in and around two burning skyscrapers and many of them to their death. But they ran to do their duty. And there was one story about, of all people, a New York City fire department chaplain by the name of Father Michael Judge. Roman Catholic. And regardless of, you know, what we might, the disagreements we might have with the Roman Catholic Church and and all of that, I just simply want to commend this to you as a story that, that represents what we see here in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Father Michael Judge, being a fire department chaplain, didn't really have to go into the danger, but he was one of the first ones there, and he was one of the first ones that was killed. There's a picture of the firefighters bringing out his dead body from the smoke and the rubble of the twin tires, towers uh, collapsing. On that day, this chaplain did his duty regardless of the danger that lay ahead. And the road, and what was at the end of that road that he took in being faithful to his duty was death. But he took that road. Now, are you willing to take that road? Am I willing to take that road in loyalty to the God who has saved us, even if it means suffering the persecution that this world might pour out against us? Are you willing? This is the question. Not what the world is doing, not how they're persecuting us, not some campaign that we need to come up with to try to make the world look bad and make the church look good. No, the the ultimate question is this. Are you willing to obey God rather than men regardless of where that road leads? Knowing that it may lead to your death. Knowing that it may lead to you having to close your business. Knowing that it may lead to you having to get out of your profession because you're obeying God and your employer is trying to get you to disobey God and you say quietly and faithfully, I need to go to another profession if I can't serve the Lord here in this profession. I mean, are you willing to walk that road? Listen to this prayer that is attributed to Father Judge. It's a prayer that really all of us could pray. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Lord, let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say. And I love the last part. And keep me out of your way. Does our disbelief get in the way of us following Jesus, does our fear get in the way of us following Jesus? Does our concern about our reputation and our future economically get in the way of us following Jesus? Lord, don't let me get in your way. 
You lead me. Give me the grace to have faith in you, and I'll follow you, even if it means to my death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew what was ahead of them, the fiery furnace. And they said, our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, but his will may not be that. His will might be for us to burn and to die, but we trust our God. And that even in our death, he will use it to accomplish his purposes. And brothers and sisters, that's faith. And that's our response to this culture that is trying to get us to bow to the altar of this world's humanistic religion. But Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego help us understand that we are to obey God rather than men, irrespective of where that obedience may lead us. Father in heaven, we are so weak and frail. And when we think of running toward a burning building to do our duty, regardless of the outcome, that, that's a weighty thing for us. But Father, your grace is sufficient. And give us grace to obey you rather than men and leave the outcome to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.